Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Casey speaks on what the destiny of a Christian is. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So tonight, I'm going to give you a message that I gave uh, three years ago. Is the, the closest we can tell is the last time I gave it. Um, and I've actually been looking for an excuse to preach this message for the last couple of years. Because if I'm honest with you, it's one of the most practical things that I've ever put on paper. And it's really an outpouring of my own walk with the Lord uh, that, that I wish, it's just a bunch of things that I wish I knew, okay? And so um, tonight, the message is on Christian destiny. Christian destiny. What is the destiny of a Christian? And very importantly, what is your destiny? And so um, without further ado, we're going to get into the message. And I hope that you find this pastoral, practical, helpful, uh, and applicable. Amen? All right, so here we, here we go. I want everybody in the room to do a little exercise with me. I want you to close your eyes. Everybody's eyes are closed. It's you, Miss Brooke. All right, I'm going to ask you a question, several questions. And I want you to just feel the intensity, feel the weight, perhaps try to answer them if you can. Not out loud. What is the call of God on your life? What are you personally supposed to do or accomplish while you're here on this earth? What happens if you miss it? What happens if you don't fulfill your purpose? Do others suffer? Do you suffer? What is your calling? You can open your eyes. You can feel kind of the intensity and even a little bit of the anxiety surrounding that question uh, because it's, it's one that we all ask as Christians, um, but we very rarely ever get the answer to. It's something that we're, if we're honest, very consumed with, especially at your age. At your age, you are trying to figure out what it is God's calling you to do, asking you to do so that you can get on and do it, right? And, and, and it's not just a, a unique thing to Christians, although it, it applies very much so to Christians, but we, we even got this. I remember for me growing up, I'm a little bit older than you, but not very much older than you. And I remember um, being in elementary school, being in fifth grade, and they were talking about colleges. And then I get into middle school. And by the time I'm in seventh grade, I'm supposed to have already kind of figured out a little bit of a major so that when I'm in high school, I could start working towards said major so that when I'm in college, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I remember just the pressure of being a freshman and a sophomore and watching all of these people around me declare what they were gonna go do in college. And I'm like, you're a freshman, dude. You're 14 years old and you smoke a lot of weed. How the heck are you supposed to know what you want to do with your life. And I remember I, I didn't know, you know, I just, honestly, I was an aspiring drug dealer. I didn't know Jesus. That was my plan for life. I told, I remember telling my mom and dad, I said, I just want to make enough money to support myself, get high with my friends and enjoy my life. I said that I packed my bags. I moved out at 16. I was well on my way to doing so, but God, amen. I remember being 16 years old and, um, you know, I was a junior in high school at the time. I graduated, I was supposed to graduate young. I did not because I was a mess up. But um, 
I remember sitting around and everyone was like, all right, here's, here's the majors that we're looking at. Here's what we want to do. And everybody says with such confidence exactly their career path and what they were going to do with the rest of their life. You guys know that feeling? All the public school people probably know it, right? Where you're sitting around there and everyone's like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a career, career military. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. And I remember, I said, this is, this is what I said. I said, well, the guy who I like to get high with, he cuts my hair. I'd like to do that. Maybe I'll just be a barber. And that was my thought. I, was, I would just be a barber and thug it out with all my friends, right? That was my idea of my calling, but I was so sure. And I kind of put on the face because everybody else was sure. And then I came into the kingdom and I found out that the rules were the same, although the callings were a little bit different. Everybody my age at the time, 18 years old, people a little bit younger than me, people a little bit older than me, they were all consumed with the same question with different language wrapped around it. Rather than saying, what major should I declare? What, what career path should I choose? We would just change the language and say, well, what's my calling? What's God asking me to do? And I would watch as everybody would put the same face on and they would say, I'm called to do missions in Africa. I'm called to be a youth pastor. I'm called to go be a nurse so that I could do missions in Nicaragua. Whatever it was, everything always had to have some kind of ministry avenue. You know what I mean? Right? And very rarely did I meet the 18-year-old who was like, I just feel called to the marketplace, live my life, have a family, raise my kids in the Lord. It'll be good. Everything was dramatic. Everything was intense and everything was so sure. And it wasn't long before I realized that most of those people were just blowing smoke. They had no idea. They thought they knew, but they really didn't know. And I wish that somebody had given me this message when I was 18, 19, 20, when I was new in the Lord, when I was a young adult trying to figure out my life, because there is this pressure, if we're honest, to find the call of God on our life and do it. That's what we're all consumed with, right? That's probably what you're praying about most of the time. This message is gonna hit specifically on that. Now, there are two kinds of Christians, and in particular, there's probably two kinds of Christians in this room. There are those in the first camp, and you're completely honest with yourself, and you haven't got a clue what you're supposed to do. You're 18, 19, 20, 21, maybe you're 22 or 23, and you are honest and you're like, I have no idea what God is calling me to do with my life. I'm just trying to get out of bed in the morning. I got nothing. I'm working at Kroger, doing a little prayer room stuff, and that's about it. And you perhaps feel inferior to the second group of people who walk around and say, I know exactly what God has called me to do. You see, there's a group without a promise, and a group who feels like they do have a promise. They feel like the Lord's spoken to them and given them prophetic direction for the rest of their life. Maybe they've gotten a snapshot like Abraham and they got the end result and they're a little fuzzy on the pathway to get there. Maybe they've just gotten the pathway to get there, but they're a little fuzzy on the result. But you are the one who feels like you know what you're supposed to be doing. You've got confidence. And what I want to do is I want to address both people in the room because at one point, you were each person, right? At some point, you didn't know. And at some point, you knew for some of you. And at some point, you don't know, but at some point, you will know. And so it's important that you get both messages, okay? So this is almost two sermons in one. 
but it is what it is. So the first group of people I want to address, I'm going to give you five principles I want you to remember. The second group of people I will then address and give you five principle, principles that I want you to remember. And then I'm going to follow it up with five principles that are just general thoughts that are going to be really helpful, I think, to you. Okay. I didn't pray. Lord, help me. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. To the group without a clue. Raise your hand if that's you. I'm just curious. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. So I want to give you guys something. Okay. First principle. God will never leave you or forsake you. That's a Bible verse. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Now you're like, I get that. Why is that important? How on God's green earth does that represent or help this idea of a Christian destiny? Because if we're honest, we feel like if we don't get it right, if we miss the train, if we go left when we should go right, we feel like the Lord is going to leave us. We feel like there's a window of opportunity and unless we seize it, God's not going to be with us. Or we feel like if we're honest, if we make the wrong decision, and instead of pursuing career path A or ministry path B, we go the other direction, we feel like the Lord is not going to be with us. And I remember thinking that and feeling that pressure. And I've talked to so many people who they, this is what they'll say, they'll go, I, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I'm afraid to make the wrong decision. I'm afraid. What if, I, what if I put all of my time and energy and money into a degree that I'm not going to need? What if I waste these early years just going off into missions, but that's not really what I, and I don't know what to do. And, I, and you get this thing that, that preachers will call the paralysis of analysis, right? Where you're like, you got so many options and you don't know which one to choose and you don't know which one God's telling you to choose. And so instead of, instead of choosing one and going forward, we think, well, I'm just going to stay put. And I want to remind you, the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if you don't know what to choose and you choose something, what you just need to know is God is still going to be with you. He is still going to love you. He's still going to smile over you. He is still covering you in his blood. He is still right there walking side by side with you. It does not say, in other words, God will never leave you nor forsake you as long as you do what's right at the right time in the right place and in the right way. But that's kind of how we read it sometimes. And I remember thinking even my own self as a 19, 20 year old before I was, trying to figure, I was trying to figure out what to do. I remember thinking, okay, if I choose wrong, I'm gonna end up in the desert. But if I choose right, I'm gonna end up in the promised land. That was my way of thinking. And I was like, well, I don't wanna do the desert. And I'm just gonna tell you, it's kind of a bad way to think about it. God may lead you to a desert. He may lead you to the promised land. It doesn't really matter. God's still going to be with you. God was with the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness and he was with the people of Israel when they were in the promised land. God will not leave you. And so what you need to do is you need to take a little bit of sigh of relief and you don't need to operate out of fear and you just need to know that whatever you choose because you are saved and covered in the blood, if you are saved and covered in the blood, which I'm assuming you are because you're here, then you're okay. God's not going to bail on you. Okay, so that's the first one. God will never leave you or forsake you. The second thing I wanna say to the group without a clue is destiny is often stumbled into and not run after. Destiny is often stumbled into and not run after. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this as an example um, in the Bible. First Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses 14 through 20. 
Okay, Samuel kind of comes on the scene and he decides he's going to, via the Lord, anoint the next king of Israel. And this king is gonna, he's gonna be the king after God's own heart, the man after God's own heart. It's time. And so Samuel goes to Jesse and he goes, Jesse, get all your sons. And he, he picks the youngest son and he anoints this young man who was a shepherd in the fields and his name was David. And he says, David, you are the king of Israel. The Lord is anointing you for destiny. This is the call of God in your life. So you can imagine David's a young man and he hears the destination, the end goal. He hears where this whole thing's gonna end up at. David, you will be king. You will rule and you will rule really well. But what fascinates me about this, and I will read it, is David doesn't begin to seek after the prophetic destiny that's on his life. Because you would think in the moment, you'd be like, great, cool. I'm gonna walk up to the castle, walk up to the palace. I'm in charge. I'm the king. I get to do what I wanna do and I'm gonna take my throne. God's anointed me. He's called me. It's awesome. But he doesn't do that. Look at what it says. Instead, he goes into the shepherd fields, which is exactly what he was doing before. So he gets the word, this is where your life is going. And instead of chasing after it and seeking after it, he goes, okay, thanks, duly noted. And goes back to being faithful, shepherding sheep for his family who has forgotten him. And God makes this kind of weird roundabout way of getting David into the palace and into and uh, ultimately onto the throne. And so I'm gonna read it for you. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 20. Okay, so Saul was the king at the time. David's out in the fields. He's already been anointed king. And this is what happens. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's what you don't ever want to happen. Okay, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Let it mess with your theology. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who was with the flock. Jesse then took a donkey and loaded up with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat don't know why the young goat, but it's in there. And sent them to Saul by David, his son. And so I want you to get the picture. David gets the call. You are to be king. God is anointing you and calling you. And he is predestined it, if you want to use that language. He has a calling on your life, David. You are to be the king of Israel. And David says, God, it goes back to shepherding and playing music for the Lord all by himself. And God, on the other end of the world, what it must have felt like, he goes, I'm going to 
leave Saul, send a demon to terrorize him so that Saul seeks out a skillful worship leader. And that's gonna be David's ticket into the throne. And that's the beginning of David's um, story becoming king. That's when Saul begins to get jealous and starts to hunt him down and people decide they wanna start following David. And that was eventually how David would get to be king. Now, why am I saying that? because David didn't get the image of what he was supposed to do, his destiny, and then immediately begin planning and preparing for it. David did not go, okay, I need to go to college to be a leader. I need to go major in business development and leadership because that will be super helpful. David did not say, okay, I'm gonna start rallying a bunch of people. I'm gonna make plan A, then we're gonna go to plan B, and then we're gonna step C, whatever. David literally got the vision and then went back and was faithful to do what he was called to do. And next thing you know, just being faithful in the little things, he kind of stumbled his way into his destiny. And I'm just going to tell you, that's probably how it's going to go for you. You may be one of the lucky ones, so to speak, who gets the, the, the image, the, the, the end all picture of your destiny. This is where you're going. But the reality is, destiny is often stumbled into. And you may think you know how you're gonna get there, but you have no clue. And once you get there, you're gonna realize it probably was nothing like you thought it was. And so for the person without a clue, here's why I say this, because the temptation for you is to think, I've got to know where I'm going and I've got to know how I'm gonna get there. And I'm just gonna tell you, nobody actually knows that. Yes, people in the church will act like they know it. I get it. And it's annoying, I get it. But I promise you, they don't know and you're not supposed to know. Most of us just stumble our way by faithfulness. We end up, we're being faithful in the little things over the long haul, which is the picture of radical FYI. And next thing you know, 20 years later, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm here. This is exactly what I was called to do. I'm doing exactly what the Lord's asked me to do. And so no, you do not have to have a clear picture of what it looks like. And no, you do not have to know how to get there. So the first thing I said to the group without a clue is God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. The second thing is destiny is often stumbled into and not run after. And then the third thing is that God is your shepherd. Okay, now I get it because that's, again, kind of like the first one. Of course, you know that. Raise your hand if you guys know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, okay? Here's why this is important. Because that means that you are not your shepherd. I let that sink in for just a second. The Lord is your shepherd, which means you are not your shepherd. The Lord takes the responsibility of getting you from point A to point B. That's not on you. You are not the great shepherd of your soul. And so here's the idea. Um, if you look at, uh, if, I don't know if you guys have ever done any research on sheep but it would be helpful, right? There are some just analogies that are often talked about in scripture that if you don't, if you don't know them, you're, you're gonna miss them. Here's the thing. I went and did a bunch of research about sheep one time because I was like, what the heck is this thing? Sheep are fascinating. They're absolutely remarkably dumb, number one, okay? They just are. And so when Jesus is like, we're sheep, we just need to be like, yeah, we're totally sheep, okay? You can find video footage on YouTube 
they like they follow a crowd. Sheep. That's how they that's how they herd them so well. They just they follow a crowd. So they work on the first little group, and then everybody just kind of follows suit. And so if the first group goes off a cliff, you can literally watch the entire herd of sheep jump off the cliff to their death. They're remarkably dumb animals, but not only are they dumb, they can't see well. Right? They can't see. Their their eyesight is 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 horrible. They see very narrow and they see kind of blurry. And so here's the thing. You and I, we're sheep. This is not a word curse, but we are remarkably dumb and we can't see very well. Okay, there's the analogy. And that's okay, God loves us anyway. But here's the deal. Do not expect to be able to shepherd your own life because you can't. It's not your job to figure out how to get you from point A to point B to point C to point D. No, God is a shepherd and he sees way better than we can see and he's way smarter than we are and he's a really, really good shepherd. Do you know what that means? He is really competent. Like he is a very skillful shepherd. He is very good at getting you where you need to be most of the time without you even realizing it. He's good. The responsibility of a sheep is simply this, to stay as close as possible to the shepherd. And if you stay close to the shepherd, you will be led well and you'll be protected. That's how sheep herding works. And that's our responsibility. And so our responsibility is not to go up on the mountain and to look and go, okay, we can get from there to there and we're gonna go this way and we're gonna make this step and this plan. Our job is literally, the Bible would call it like this, to abide, to stay as close as possible, as long as possible with the Lord. That does not mean in a theological sense. That does not mean I've checked all the right boxes and I'm saved. You can be saved and never abide. That means legitimately getting yourself to the place where you are close to the presence of God. You are close to the word of God, the person of God and the people of God. You are abiding. And if you do that, you're gonna be staring up at him the whole time. And next thing you know, you're gonna look around and you're gonna be exactly where you need to be. That's how this is gonna work for you. So that's, Again, hoping, I say that to alleviate some of the pressure for all of you who have no idea what you're gonna do. You're not supposed to know. You're supposed to just abide. Uh, this, the fourth thing I wanna say is this, um, that it is not your job um, to get it right. Whatever it is, the destiny, the, the destination or the method to get there, it is your job to acknowledge the Lord. This is really important. Uh, Proverbs says this, that if you acknowledge the Lord in all the ways, um, in all of your ways, he will make your paths straight. And, and it's kind of one of those cheesy Christian Bible verses that we throw on coffee cups at Lifeway, but it's a really good one. You know what I'm talking about, right? But it's a really good one. Acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways and he will make your paths straight. In other words, your job is not to make your path straight. Your job is to what? Abide and acknowledge the Lord according to that verse, right? And so here's the thing. I will, I've watched and I have, I have personally done it, been so consumed with trying to straighten my own path and I'm not even acknowledging the Lord because I think that my job in that verse is to make my path straight. And what I love about that is it actually implies that your path is not gonna be straight. 
it kind of automatically implies that you're going to acknowledge the Lord and get it wrong. But as long as you are acknowledging the Lord, he's going to straighten it and make it right. So you go, okay, wait a second. Okay, my job is not to get it right. My job is not to get the ultimate destination right, nor the method to get there right. But my job is to acknowledge the Lord. What does that look like? There's a very helpful thing to know. If I could tell you that, hey, I can guarantee that you're going to get exactly where you need to be at exactly the right time in exactly the right way. And all you have to do is acknowledge the Lord. You should be like, well, teach me how to acknowledge the Lord. I will. Thank you for asking. Glad you're eager to know. I'm going to give you four things. These are things that I apply into my own life. Um, And unfortunately, while these are all biblical The Bible doesn't say, acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways that he may straighten your paths and do this and do this and do this and do this. And if you do these things, then you're acknowledging the Lord. I can't say that the Bible says that, but these seem to be like really safe things. And these are what I do in my own life. Anytime I'm making one, a big decision that has impact or number two, I'm trying to figure out where is that uh, that next portion of my calling. The very first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna seek the word, the Bible. And I'm going to make sure, number one, that whatever it is I'm feeling is not violating the scripture. Now, that seems like it it seems like a no-brainer, but it may not be, right? You may be put in situations where you're like, I don't know, does this violate the Bible? It's very clear if if you're like, I feel like the Lord is telling me to go kill somebody, you're gonna, like, you can very tell, like, really clearly tell, okay, well, the Bible doesn't, that violates scripture, right? But there are lots of times where it's not that cut and dry, And it's up to you to figure out, does this really violate some scripture? So one, you got to figure out, does it violate scripture? But two, as you're seeking the word, I'm going to ask that that whatever it is that you think might be your calling or your destiny or the the, at least the, the destiny for this season, it shouldn't just not violate the word. It should really be birthed from the word. Like it should be something that that as you read the word, it's a desire that grows in you and a dream that grows in you comes from the word. So the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna seek the word. The second thing I'm gonna do to make sure that I'm acknowledging the Lord in all of my ways is I'm gonna seek the Lord in prayer and fasting. That's a big one, okay? And this is probably the thing that is most neglected when I watch people who struggle when they go, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with my life. Very few people have figured out the discipline of actually fasting and praying for clarity. If we're honest, we might go two minutes. It might be just a fleeting thought that we have in the car on our way to work and we just kind of like, you know, just direct it towards the Lord. But, but very rarely do we go, I don't know the direction to choose and I'm 21 years old. I need clarity from heaven. Let me fast. Not technology, that's not a fast. I love you, that's not a fast. Don't fast sugar, that doesn't count. Fasting, in the Bible is abstaining from food, going from eating to not eating. Everything else is just helpful abstination. Okay, I'm not saying you shouldn't fast technology, but it doesn't count, right? I mean, like really, like, like go, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to get away from the dinner table. I'm gonna get away from the breakfast table and I'm gonna spend days fasting and praying. And you may only know how to pray for five minutes. I get it. Don't leave the place in posture of prayer. You go, God, I need clarity on this. I need something. And you will be shocked how often the Lord will answer when we actually stick it out for longer than 30 seconds. You'll be shocked. 
You'd be like day three in the fast and all of a sudden somebody would come up to you and read your mail and be like, by the way, the Lord's saying this, this, and this. And you're like, dang, just praying that. But it does, it takes prayer and it takes fasting, okay? Prayer and fasting. Seek, so seek the word, seek the Lord in prayer and fasting. The third out of the four is gonna be this. Um, seek your spiritual authority. Now that's a funny word. You may not have a grid for that word. Um, I'm kind of actually in the process of actually studying out what that looks like in the Bible because I think we may use that a little too flippantly in the church, spiritual authority. Um, but all of us have what the Bible would call some form of spiritual authority over our life. It does not mean that we have to do exactly what they tell us to do, but it does mean they hold and carry a special weight. They're perhaps a little bit more responsible for um, us. And so um, for some of you, this is gonna get real whacked and real hard to navigate because two years ago, your spiritual authority were your parents. But now you're not so sure. Right, I remember I've got uh, my, my wife, she grew, up in, uh, she grew up in church, godly mom and dad, and she was 25 years old and she's trying to wrestle with her, my parents, my spiritual authority still. Because she was 25, but she was living at home and it was her mom and dad and they, she loved her mom and dad. And, and, and how, do you, how do you wrestle with who your spiritual authority? And the reality is, I don't know who that is for you. Do not assume it's your pastor, number one. I am not most of your spiritual authority. Just know that, okay? But you probably have someone a pastor that you feel like is your pastor. Maybe a mentor. Maybe it is your, your, your mom and your dad. Maybe ladies, you're gonna get married and, and that will fall to your husband. And he's going to be your spiritual head and your covering and protection. And, and what you do is when, when you're trying to figure out what decision to make and where am I going, and in order to acknowledge the Lord, you seek the word, you seek the Lord in prayer and fasting, and then you seek your spiritual authority. What do you think about this? And so I've got somebody in my life that I do this very thing with. I just decided to move. Here's a great example. I just decided um, that we were going to sell our house and um, here's what I did. It didn't violate the word, okay? Number two, I went to the Lord in prayer and fasting and so did my wife. We felt like we kind of got a, a, a thumbs up, but then we said, okay, let's seek out some spiritual authority. People who are invested in us at a higher level and who, if we make a really stupid decision, will feel a little responsible. And so we did. We sought out people like uh, Pastor Billy or Pastor Dustin. And I said, okay, here's what we're thinking. What are you guys thinking? They're like, yeah, yeah, everybody's like thumbs up. But then we went to the next category and this is how you acknowledge the Lord the fourth way. You seek wise counsel. And I like to, to vary this up because wise counsel doesn't have to look like spiritual authority. For a lot of you guys, I might fall in the wise counsel category, though I may not fall in the spiritual authority category. Okay? So wise counsel could be anybody. It could be a Christian. It could be a non-Christian. For us, we went and we sought my father-in-law because he is a financial advisor and a very successful financial advisor. And so we were like, hey, we think we could sell for this much. We think we, we could do this with the money. What do you think? And he ran some numbers and he's like, I think this is a really good idea. And then we talked to a realtor friend of ours and we were like, hey, this is what we're thinking. And he's like, yeah, I think this is a really good idea. Right? Wise counsel. There's wisdom and a multitude of counsel. So that's what we did. So I do these four things and I say, okay, if I don't have clarity on an answer, I'm free to choose because no matter what, I know that I have acknowledged the Lord and I've given him lots of space to speak. And if he hasn't spoken clearly, maybe he doesn't care. That sounds a little flippant, but I'm serious. Sometimes God just doesn't care. Sometimes God's like, you just choose. I'm good, whatever. Choose whatever college, I got you. 
But sometimes he does have a preference, and so that's what we do. We acknowledge the Lord, and he will straighten our paths. We seek the word, we seek the Lord in prayer and fasting, we seek our spiritual authority, and then we seek wise counsel. And then when you get married, you seek everybody who is going to have a dramatic impact uh, by the decision that you're making. I'm just gonna give that um, food for thought. So like for me, that'd be my wife. I'm not gonna make a decision without talking to her because she's gonna bear the consequences if this thing goes south, whatever it is. So that's for the two of you in the room who are married. Number five. So your job was to acknowledge the Lord, not to get it right. Number five, often the shepherd doesn't lead with vocal commands. He leads with a rod and with a staff. So you're like, I have no idea what to do. I've got no idea. You think everybody else has clarity. You're realizing all sheep are pretty much dumb and cannot see and the clarity that they think they have, they don't really have. This is important. The shepherd often does not lead with vocal commands but he often leads with a rod and a staff. A shepherd, remember I told you that sheep are really blind? They can't navigate the terrain really well. And so here's what a, a shepherd will do. They don't, they don't spend time wasting their breath calling. Instead, they take a rod and they whack the sheep on the side of the head and tell them, don't go this way. And the sheep will go that way. Smack it this way. It's pretty hilarious to watch. So when David says, uh, uh, Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What he's actually saying is, hey, the thing that kind of hurts in the moment brings me a lot of comfort. Okay, here's how this translates to us. That proverbial rod and staff is not a vocal command. Go this way. Go to this school. Thus saith the Lord, you shall be a mighty man and preach the gospel across the nations. Often, it's done through circumstances. Often, it's done through closed doors and open doors. And it, it hurts to go left and it, it hurts to go right. Um, the, 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 uh, I can't remember who actually says it. I want to say it is, I'm going to go David. Don't know who it is, but I think it's David. It talks about being hedged in with thorns. It hurts if I go left. It hurts if I go right. It hurts if I back up. The only way is this direction. That's the rod and the staff. And so some of you, you're waiting for vocal commands. You're waiting for a prophetic word to come and say, I want you to go do A, B, and C. But really what you should be doing is just walking forward and waiting for the staff to smack you in the face. And I know that sounds so kind of tongue in cheek, but I'm telling you, as somebody who's lived some life with the Lord, that's typically how it rolls. Nope, this hurts, not going that direction. The, the, the adage is, uh, Dustin uses it all the time, and I love it, God can't turn a parked car. So if you're trying to move forward and you're trying to find the right direction, if you just go, have some courage. You've acknowledged the Lord. You may not have clarity, but you're choosing a path. You're gonna go. The Lord is gonna straighten your paths. Amen? All right. So that's to the group without a clue. The guys who have no idea what they're doing, just know, um, oh, Lord, help me. Where am I? Yeah, I'm right. Okay. Here we go. So I'm going to repeat those just for your sake. It was God will never leave you nor forsake you. Destiny is often stumbled into. It's not run after. Um, God is your shepherd. You are not. Uh, Your job is to acknowledge the Lord, not to get it right. And then number five, often the shepherd does not lead with vocal commands. In other words, don't just hinge everything on a prophetic word, but often he leads through a rod and a staff, um, which is painful circumstances uh, and open doors. Okay. To the group with a promise. This will go kind of quick because I realize we're, we're going out of time here. Those of you who are in the room, you didn't raise your hand. You've got pretty clear direction on what this is going to look like and how you're going to get there. 
I just want to give this to you. As somebody who has had that same thing myself, I thought I would be the senior pastor of a church right now. That's what I thought God was telling me to do, FYI. And here I am, not the senior pastor, and loving every second of it. Amen. To the group given a promise, sometimes God will ask you to destroy the dream that he gave you. Sometimes the very dream that God gave you, the very prophetic word, the very destiny, sometimes we can get to a place where we idolize that, seek that, and chase that, and God's answer is, there will be no other gods before me. I want you to kill it. And perhaps there's no greater example of this than when Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac, his son. Right now we look at that and we're like, yeah, that sounds a little harsh. He's sacrificing his son. But if you remember the Genesis series, it's more than sacrificing his son. He's sacrificing the very line, the very child of promise. God said, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. and I'm gonna do it through your son. You're gonna name your son Isaac. And I gotta believe that at some point he started idolizing the dream over the dream giver. And God says, it's time to kill the very dream that I gave you. That promise line, it's coming in the way between you and me. We're gonna have to get rid of that Moses, or we're gonna have to get rid of that Abraham. And sometimes the Lord will do that to you. And so keep it in perspective. The destiny, the dream, the promise, that's not the most important thing. And that's not your true north in life. That's not the thing that you're, you're, you're altering your entire life for. Jesus is. Everything is about intimacy with the Lord. And so if this, this grand, amazing thing begins to take you away from closeness and intimacy with the Lord, rest assured, God will ask you to give it up. So just keep that in your mind. Um, here's the next thing that you need to know, those of you who were given a promise. By the way, I now fall into that category. So I'm preaching to myself. Um, that promise may be conditional. Now we don't like that, right? Because when we think about when we think about God's promises, we think, and all your promises are yes and amen. But I'm going to tell you something. There are promises that are yes and amen in the Bible. That's very clear. But there's also promises that are very deeply conditional. In other words, hey, I promise the result will be this if indeed you do this. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, the result that you want won't happen. And there is no better example of this than the man we've been talking about, Moses. Moses was given a promise. Moses, I want you to be the deliverer. I want you to go take your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt. And I want you to take them into the promised land. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be the greatest thing that you've ever done. But the condition was that he would continue to meet with God face to face that he would continue to walk in faith and not in unbelief. The problem was he didn't meet the condition. And they get up to the promised land and instead they send, so they send the 12 spies in. They shouldn't have even sent the spies in, number one, because God was like, I'm giving you the land. But he sends in 12 spies, 10 spies come back and they're like, we can't take the land. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, they're like, we can take the land. And Moses goes, yeah, I don't think we can take the land. So you know how Moses dies? He dies overlooking the mountain He's sitting on top of the mountain overlooking the promised land. And that's how he dies. Looking at the dream that God gave him, told him, prophesied to him, declared to him, this is what I have for you. But Moses didn't do it right. And God didn't leave Moses. Moses was still awesome in the Lord's sight, but he did not meet his destiny. Sometimes the promise is conditional. And so those of you who you've got a clear direction and a clear path and you know how you're going there, just know 
that it can be a little dicey and you need to stay faithful and you need to stay obedient. You need to stay faith-filled and obedient. Amen? All right, number three, to the group given a promise. Uh, Your promise may not be fulfilled by you. Um, I want to read to you um, out of uh, Hebrews. Uh, So Hebrews 11, it's talking about this is the hall of faith. This is like all of the faithful people in the Old Testament who did amazing things and earned favor and acceptance and approval of the Lord by their faith, demonstrating that, that we've always been saved by grace through faith, that it's never been about works, right? And so Hebrews 11 starts, it starts off, man, and it's like, and Abel, and, 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 and it works this way, Abraham, and, and, and Isaac, and Joseph, and, and Moses, and it gets to David, and he kind of hits all these Old Testament saints, and it says this, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, each of them were given a promise, a very specific promise. And God said, yeah, I actually gave them that promise, but that promise wasn't for them. It was for the generations to come. That promise was a legacy promise. And so many of us, we can see the destination and we can see we got a promise and the Lord's, Lord's given it to us. And maybe it's actually not for us. Maybe it's for your child, your son or your daughter. Maybe it's for your grandchildren. Maybe it's for a spiritual son or a spiritual daughter. The reality is we think very generationally. We think that God is only doing something in this generation, but you got to remember he's doing something in the next generation and he's doing something in the next generation, not completely severed from what he's doing in this generation. He's doing it all together and God really likes legacy. And so just know that yes, you may have this grand, amazing promise like Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land, but you may not get that promise here because it needed to be fulfilled by others. Okay, so your promise may not be fulfilled by you. Then number four, God didn't create you to accomplish something. He created you to be something. Your greatest purpose in your life is not your destiny and not what you're gonna do for the Lord. You gotta get that. The greatest thing you'll ever do for the Lord is not preach to thousands, plant churches, see the nation saved, see revival hit the workplace. That's not it. He created you to be a son, which is the first commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to be a servant, which is the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You're called first and foremost. How many of you have ever asked the question, just at show of hands, how many of you have asked, I, I, I need to know what is God's will for my life? Raise your hand, nice and high. That's God's will for your life. The Bible makes that incredibly clear that his will for your life perhaps might not be as precise as you might think it is, but it's very clearly this, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, to be a son and to be a servant. And here's the good news. You can do that everywhere you go. You could go, you could do that anywhere you go. So you can do that in the marketplace. You can do that in full-time ministry. You can do that over in the nations. You can do that here in Laodicea. It doesn't matter. 
And as long as you are doing those two things, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, being a son and a daughter, and loving your neighbor as yourself, being a servant to those around you, you have completed the will of God. And it's awesome. The, 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 uh, the disciples, they ask this in John 6, they say, Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And he responds with this. This is the will of God that you would believe in him whom he sent. That you would believe in him whom he sent. He doesn't say, this is the will of God that you would go out, Peter, and you would plant churches and that, and that everyone would follow after you. 3,000 people would get saved on the day of Pentecost. Nope. He doesn't say, this is my will, Paul that you would go out and plant churches all across Asia Minor and, and you would write 13 books in the New Testament and, and it would be awesome and everyone would, 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 would love you and they would hold you as sacred. Nope, none of that. This is the will of God. Believe in him whom he sent. And that takes some of the pressure off of this thing of like, I've got to go out and do a bunch of stuff for the Lord. I'm telling you, he did not create you to get his will done you actually are his will. He can get his will done without you. He can get his will done with angels. He could will his will to be done. He's God. What he needs is nothing from you. He doesn't need you to go out and do something. He desires you to be something, to be a son and to be a servant. And that should really take the pressure off. So it doesn't matter if you go out and have some grand, amazing thing happen, uh, you know, some grand, amazing destiny. Doesn't matter if you don't know or do know what you're called to do. What you are clearly, biblically, scripturally called to do is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And the greatest thing that you'll ever do is say yes to Jesus. And I like to tell people that all the time and I will preach that all the live long day. When Jesus gets baptized and the, the heavens part and the, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and they hear a voice and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was after 30 years of Jesus doing absolutely nothing for God. Jesus didn't do a single miracle. He didn't do a single healing. He didn't save anyone. He didn't preach the gospel. All he did was stay faithful, be a carpenter, love his mom and dad, and teach the Bible when he could. That was it. He was faithful. And after 30 years of faithfulness, God shows up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That does not come on the cross. That does not come after Jesus has done a bunch of stuff for God. That does not come after a bunch of miracles. That literally comes after nothing. Because it's the greatest thing that you could ever accomplish is to say yes for the Lord and everything else pales in comparison. And it should, again, take some of that pressure off. You don't have that thing, that destiny, whatever it is. Think about the promise. Think about the prophetic words that have been spoken over you. That, if you could knock that out of the park, and not make a single mistake would not mean as much to the Lord as the day that you said yes to him. Just let that sink in. God didn't create you to accomplish something. He created you to be something. And then um, number five, this is the most um, encouraging part to the group with the promise and really even to those without, you are not that important to the kingdom of God. You are not that important to the kingdom of God. Now, here's why I say this. Because some of us feel like, if we're honest, if we don't hit the destiny, that if we don't hit the goal, that people are going to suffer, that the kingdom is going to suffer. 
There's a pressure that if you don't show up, somehow, some way, things are not going to be as good. Some of you, maybe you lead little, little Bible studies and you feel the pressure. If you don't show up, God's going to be angry. He's going to be frustrated. The, the things of God are not going to go forth. I will never forget when the Lord spoke this to me through the Bible, Ecclesiastes 1. We'll read it here in a second. It was when we were getting ready to start what was called Forerunner. We were getting ready to relaunch it. And I'd put all this blood, sweat, and tears. I was working like 70-hour weeks. I was absolutely killing it. And we were going to our first meeting. Shelly, I don't know if you remember this. You were there, right? Peter would have been there. Uh, no, no, Peter wouldn't have, but you were, right? And, and we're going to this meeting and I'm, I'm praying right before the meeting. It's the first meeting with all of our leaders and we're getting ready to just launch this thing. And it's gonna be a movement and thousands of people are gonna get saved. It's gonna be wonderful, right? And I'm like praying and I'm going through Ecclesiastes 1. I'm like rocking in my office, you know, and I'm feeling the Lord and, and the Lord whispers the most encouraging thing. He goes, you're not that important. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? I'm the most important one to you, God. I'm the apple of your eye, right? That's what we say. Because, yeah, I get that, but you're not that important to the kingdom. If you disappeared today, it wouldn't suffer. And I stopped and I'm like, wait a second, that's, that's not, that's kind of countercultural to what people tell me. But the truth of the matter is, none of us are that important. And that shouldn't cause us to be shameful. What it should cause is great freedom. And knowing that you actually don't have to hit the thing, you don't have to knock it out of the park, you don't have to kill it, because nothing's really at stake if you don't. And I've heard preachers, man, oh boy, have I heard preachers say the exact opposite message. If you don't fulfill the call of God in your life, and somebody gets into an accident, but you were supposed to minister to them, and they go to hell, it was because you didn't preach the gospel. I've heard it. I'm gonna tell you something. You're not that important. I'm not that important. If I disappeared today, if gatekeepers disappeared today, we would all be sad, but God's kingdom would continue to go forth and God's ultimate will and plans would continue. They're not dependent upon you and they're not dependent upon me. We just get to take part in them, glory to God. And, and the example that I like to use, and I've used this story before, but it's, so, it's just so pungent to me. It's, I remember my daughter, she, she, uh, she, was, she, was, I she was like four, three or four. She just wanted to spend a lot of time with daddy because daddy's awesome. Daddy was out there working on his truck. She wanted to go work on the truck. And so you know what she did? She grabbed her little plastic screwdriver and she literally starts poking at the wheels of the truck. And I'm frustrated because she's making things difficult. She's kind of getting in my way, right? And so she does, she's like walking around, she's poking the different lug nuts and she walks around, she gets to the front of the bumper. And then I finish up and she literally, it's the cutest little thing I've ever seen. She puts her hands on her hips. She kind of cocks her hips like this and she goes, I did it, Daddy. I fixed the truck. I just remember being like, what the heck do you mean? I've been out for six hours. You did nothing. I did all of the work. You didn't fix anything, little girl. You smacked something with a plastic screwdriver. And you know what? I looked at her in the moment. I said, you did it, baby girl. You fixed that truck. And it dawns on me. I know that's so silly, but it's such a, it's such a great example. In the kingdom of God, we're the little girl with the screwdriver. We actually are not the ones fixing the truck. Getting the truck running and going, that's not on us. That's on the Lord, right? We're to be Vivian in that scenario. And you know what? Vivian just wanted to be near dad. She loved dad. 
So she wanted to be near him. And so she picked up her screwdriver and she said, I'm going to do what I see my dad do. And I'm going to say what I hear my dad say. And that was all that Vivian was trying to do. And that's us. Vivian could have disappeared instantly and it would have not hindered my truck from being fixed. Does that make sense? So you just need to know all the pressure that you feel to perform or do you feel like everything's on you, especially those of you who are in ministry, it's not on you. It's on the Lord. And I'm gonna prove it to you by using Bible. Let me give you Ecclesiastes chapter one, verses one through five. We'll close here briefly. I got five more minutes with you and that's it. This is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So this is King Solomon, the wisest man on the planet. Meaningless of meaningless, says the preacher. It's all meaningless. All is meaningless. It's a little dramatic. Some of you guys, you're like that. But I love you. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth, it remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south. In other words, he goes, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And he would continue to go, what new work is there that man could say that he's done? Everything's been done before. The earth will keep on spinning. The sun will continue to rise and it will continue to go down. Everything that I have done ultimately in the grand scheme of things is meaningless. That's his opening to the book of Ecclesiastes. And then he would take the rest of the chapters to expound upon each thing that's actually meaningless. It's pretty stunning. And then he ends the Bible book by saying this in conclusion, fear God and keep his commands. Now, this is the guy who's literally done the only new thing that's really ever to be done. He's the guy who built the temple, the very dwelling place for God. Then he goes, yeah, what new work is there under the sun that man can do? It's all worthless anyway. And the idea is not that it's worthless because it's, 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 it's something shameful that we've done. It just ultimately is not on us. It's on the Lord. And so that pressure that you feel to knock it out of the park, you just need to know that's not the Lord. And oh, by the way, you're not gonna knock it out of the park. I don't care who you watch on TV. I don't care who you listen to. Nobody's knocking out of the park. Everybody's just trying. Now, some people's try is a little, you know, maybe um, further in the process, but everybody's just trying. All right, let me give you my last final thoughts. I'm not even gonna expound upon them. I'm just gonna read. Number one, um, this is the final thoughts on destiny. Don't assume the Lord is taking you to a place of leadership. I'm gonna talk about that next week, but don't we all assume that God is taking us to some great mantle of leadership? Okay, I'll let that sit. Number two, the Lord doesn't always show you the end game. Sometimes he just shows you the next steps. Sometimes all you got is what does the next two years look like? And I'm gonna be faithful to that. And then when those two years are up, you reevaluate. That's okay. Number three, your grand calling might not be as grand as you think. When we think about that destiny, that promise, that thing that's been given to us so often, we think it's amazing and grand and stunning. And sometimes we forget that actually maybe it just looks like being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. But I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. 
Not everything can be grand and not everybody can be on stage. Not everybody can be a leader. Not everybody can lead millions of people to Jesus or thousands of people to Jesus or plant churches. That's okay. We just need to be content with whoever, whatever we're doing. Number four, the, the Lord values faithfulness over results always. He is far less concerned about the results and far more concerned about your faithfulness. And so here's a really real example of this. We're doing this ministry at GGC. Okay, we're doing campus ministry. We've done it for um, a year and a half, I think, at this point. Okay, and I believe very specifically that we need to not lose heart and we need to continue to be on campus and we need to continue to be faithful regardless of if that ministry blows up. Why? Because God is always more concerned with our faithfulness than he is the results. It was never about having a giant blow-up campus ministry. It's about learning to be faithful, learning to be steadfast, learning to, be, learning to persevere. And we leave the results up to the Lord. The Lord will do whatever he wants to do. And then number five, uh, destiny is only ever meant to bring you closer to the Lord. Um, Dustin likes to say it like this. Your destiny is not your destination. Your destination is actually intimacy with the Lord. And so often we think that God's calling us to go do something and, and, and once we do that, it's like we've, we've checked the box. Now we can retire. Now we can be at ease. And the reality is it was never actually about that thing. And we can get so fixated on that thing that we forget that that thing, whatever it is, that promise, and in the journey getting there was only ever meant to bring us closer to the Lord. That's it. And so if you get there, you get on stage. Some of you are called to be major leaders in the Christian world. You get on stage, you got thousands of people following you. If you're there, but your heart's far from the Lord, you missed it completely. The whole point is this, this journey, this destination is an invitation to intimacy. And we got to remember that that's the, ultimately the thing that matters the most is being as close to the Lord as we can. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.